Hello, my Bethel Church family. I would love to be able to say that uh, it's good to see you, but of course I can't see you. So I'm sure you all look great sitting there in your flannel pajamas and your Crocs and uh, you over there with the cat sitting on your lap here in church and all that. So uh, for some of you, this is probably your ideal version of church, a church you've always dreamed of. Um, I wanted to start our time together before we dive right into our passage uh, I wanted to start with a little bit of encouragement and a little bit of perspective on just the sort of the time that we find ourselves in. And uh, in one sense, this sort of global event that is going on, this experience, uh, seems to me to be unprecedented. Uh, we've experienced pandemics before. We've experienced natural disasters before. Uh, we've seen world wars, uh, but the scale of social distancing and self-isolation, to my knowledge, has uh, never occurred before. So we are we're making history here. And in one sense, uh, I want to sort of bring that up because this is a moment that we will look back upon. And we will study this, we will evaluate it, we will learn from it, we'll make discoveries. And uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if the world looked back at this time and saw that the church handled themselves in these times of strain with a uniqueness and a beauty and a dignity that was unmatched by the world. Uh, wouldn't this be a great occasion for people to see the light of Christ in us as we go through the challenges that we're all facing? And to this point, I want to provide some encouragement to you as a Christian. I want to remind you of some of the resources that you have in this. Uh, Christians have experienced uh, various times in history where the church did have to go underground or retreat into enclaves of safety or do church at home. And usually it was persecution that pressed them to these kinds of uh, worship practices. This, of course, is not persecution that we're facing. This is voluntary. This is compassionate compassionate distancing and a profound expression of love for neighbor, and even seeking the good of the city, to borrow a phrase from Jeremiah as he instructed Judah when they were carried off to exile in Babylon. And I want to read to you that passage in case you're not familiar with it. In Jeremiah 29.7, it says this, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so we have this sense of we're tied to this community. We're not totally separate from it. We are to be for it and for its good, and this is one of the ways that we are being for its good. And I want to remind you of the resources that you have as a Christian. And I'm not just talking about the moose meat in your freezer or the Costco-sized stash of toilet paper you might have in a closet somewhere. But as Christians... As the community of faith, we have an incredible spiritual resource to equip us, to sustain us, and to encourage us. And I just want to bring some of these things to the front of your mind. You know these, but I want to remind you of what you know. Consider that as a church family, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, the same Holy Spirit indwells us. You don't have your own personal version of the Spirit and me, mine. But the same Holy Spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit, 
indwells each of us. That means that we have a connectivity and a solidarity as the body of Christ that transcends just gathering together in a place. Secondly, we have access to the same written word of God. And it is the enduring authority and a source of hope and encouragement and guidance. And and we have access to it whether we're in the same room or across the globe. And it's an incredible gift that God has given to us. We also share the living example of Jesus Christ. He is a guide to us in what it looks like to love God and to love our neighbor. And uh, even though our lives are very different, they're not the same. Our Savior is the same. And His life instructs and informs our lives. We also are the priesthood of the believers, as 1 Peter tells us. Uh, A.W. Tozer also calls us portable sanctuaries, which I think is a very apt phrase right now. He goes on to say that if we worship in spirit and truth, we can take our sanctuary around with us. We're not dependent upon a location. We're not dependent upon any human person to connect us with God. We, each of us, have direct access to God because Christ is our mediator and the Holy Spirit is our advocate. So we can worship together. We can worship at home. The church is not a building. The church is the people of God in Christ Jesus. Finally, I want to just remind you that you are already a community of faith. That means that the time that you have put into building relationships and community with one another by worshiping together, serving together, learning together, sharing meals, being in small groups together, listening, all these things that you have done, the one another's of Scripture, have created for you a network of the body of Christ that right now is paying dividends for you. So I don't want to diminish uh, the value of gathering. Uh, I think you probably are feeling that it's very, a very special thing uh, as we're not able to do it right now. And I tell you what, I, as I look forward and I think about it, um, that first Sunday when we're all back together is going to be sweet. So it is a special time. But I think it is something that uh, I just want to bring to your mind, that we as Christians are uniquely equipped to handle a time of adversity such as this, Uh, because we are already and always one in Christ, and we know that our God reigns supreme. So with that, uh, I would tell you, uh, put the cat down and uh, get your Bible out and open to the book of Galatians, and we're going to keep going right through our series. Uh, The series that we've been doing is Freed in Christ. Uh, We're going to be in Galatians uh, chapter 4 today, verses 8 through 20. And the title of the message is Saved by Grace Through Faith. This is part four, so it's beginning to sound like a Rocky series here, but we're on part four of this. And since it's been a while since we've been together, I want to just catch you up on where we've been. Uh, There are three main parts to the book of Galatians. Uh, Every two chapters, we kind of move into a a new section. And so the first part we see in chapters one and two is the gospel defended. And then in chapters 3 and 4, we have the gospel explained. Chapters 5 and 6, we have the gospel applied. And we are in this center section right now of uh, the gospel explained. And uh, and this section, really, there's one big main point that is coming through, and that is that salvation comes by grace through faith apart from works. And as you might know and remember, Paul is sort of urging his Galatian hearers to reject the influence of these Judaizers that have 
come in and try to mislead uh, these churches in the region. Uh, these were folks who lived under the Mosaic law, and as they came into the region of these worshipers in, in Galatia, uh, they really challenged them with uh, saying something like, if you want to be real Christians, then you have to practice the Mosaic law. You have to practice things like Sabbath keeping and circumcision and, and whatnot. In short, they have been promoting what we might call gospel plus. And as we've seen, Paul absolutely rejects it. He's not having it at all. Gospel plus equals zero gospel. And that's sort of a thread that runs all the way through the book, sort of the math of the book of Galatians, if you will. So to explain just the centrality of the gospel and the necessity of the pure, unadulterated gospel, Paul produces six arguments uh, in the center section of this book, and, and I just want to run through them really quick. First of all, we've seen the experiential argument, and he, this is in chapter 3, 1 through 5. Paul basically says, hey, consider how it was that you received the Holy Spirit. Was it by works? Did you simply do enough works, and then finally the Holy Spirit indwelt you and you were saved? Or was it by faith? It was by faith, and they know this. Then there was the scriptural argument where Paul basically takes them back uh, to Abraham himself, the father of the Jews, and he reminds, uh, reminds his hearers that even Abraham was saved by faith, not by works, not by the keeping of the law, but by faith, as the scripture says. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then we found what we called the logical argument. And this was sort of the argument that anticipates the question. Uh, if we're saved by faith, then why did God bother giving the law? What was it here for? And, and Paul sort of argues that the law had benefit, but it was temporary. It was tutorial, like training wheels, like a nanny, like a probation officer. It was for a time because of sin. And then we moved into what we called the adoption argument. We looked at this the last time we were together. And that was simply that we have been saved from sin, but we've also been saved into something, and that is the family of God. God has adopted us and given us the spirit of sonship. We talked a little bit about how we all want that spirit of sonship because with that comes inheritance, and that's what Paul is saying in a very inclusive manner there. And then today what we look at is the fifth argument, and that is the cautionary argument. And Paul's caution here is kind of striking when you first hear it, but essentially it's this, that the legalist is just as lost as the atheist. The legalist is just as lost as the atheist, maybe even more so, which again is kind of a shocking thing to say. So let's look at the passage together. Look in your Bibles, Galatians 4, 8 through 20, and we'll read this all, all in one uh, swoop here. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, I was, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even through my illness, or even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. 
Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. So again, Paul's point here is that the legalist is just as lost as the atheist. And amazingly, Paul sort of equates these two things, sort of living under the law uh, with their past idolatry and paganism. And each of these practices is ultimately empty and unable to deliver, unable to save. In other words, any worldview, any ideology which puts its hope of salvation in anything other than the true and the living God is ultimately empty. And so Paul reminds them that the paganism of their past was empty. This phrase here, not gods, is sort of a common idiom uh, referring to false deities, paganism, or worship of idols. And paganism, I would just simply say, is alive and well today. It doesn't have to be a little gold statue uh, to be an idol in your life. Uh, In fact, a couple weeks ago, our missionary uh, to Ghana, uh, Joe Gillat, shared with us uh, as he kind of referenced people in Ghana and how they have this idea of God and they want to carry messages to him or what we might call prayers. And in order to get their prayers or their messages to God, they feel like they have to have their dead ancestors carry their message uh, to what they understand to be about God. And then when things don't turn out as they had hoped, uh, then they feel like they have to do other things to try to manipulate the system, like sacrifices or even giving uh, gifts to the local religious leaders who will try to manipulate the situation. And they try to do whatever they can to sort of pull the levers of divine control by virtue of their efforts. And I would just say that globally, there are still plenty of people who live in this same kind of system, and they're not just in Western Africa. Uh, In fact, I was talking to a brother just the other day who uh, had just gotten some good news uh, about a a health condition that he had. And the physician told him that he had uh, sort of what he deemed to be a naturally occurring uh, recovery. And the doctor said something to the effect of, well, Mother Nature has really provided a wonderful healing for you. And this brother and I were on the phone and kind of laughing and rejoicing about this, and we kind of said to one another, Uh, We know Mother Nature by another name. Uh, He is our God, and our God is a healer. But just these kinds of comments, Mother Nature, karma, the universe, they reveal a hope that people have in false deities, uh, deities that are not there. So paganism is not just a practice across the world. Uh, It may be at the very end of your road, and it is empty. And so this was the background of the Galatian believers. They practiced paganism. And Paul is just reminding them of its emptiness and that they left it behind. But what's fascinating is he compares this emptiness of paganism to the world of legalism, that it is also empty, or we might even call it religion, if I can use that term. 
that these God-fearing Jews are trying to impose upon the Christians in Galatia, and that that kind of religion and legalism is just as empty as the paganism that they've left behind. And that's the next point. Your drift to legalism is just as empty. Tim Keller provides a great explanation of really how these two things are comparable. He says this, If anything, the slavery of religion is more dangerous than the idolatry and slavery of irreligion because it is less obvious. The irreligious person knows that he is far from God. The religious person does not. So you can see the religious person is one who is self-deceived. They think they're saved by their religion rather than accepting salvation as the free gift of God available to them by faith in Jesus Christ. And so in that way, religion is it's like a false insurance policy. It's like paying premiums and deductibles for no real coverage at all. And it is especially dangerous because one thinks that they are covered. And so they have a false sense of security. What's interesting about this, I think, is that the gospel, as we see here, is sort of an equal opportunity offender. Uh, It tells the godless person or the pagan person that there is but one true and living God, that he is holy, that he is just, and that all creation will be accountable to him. We will all of us face him someday. And as sinners and rebels, the reality of the situation is that we only deserve judgment for our sin, for our sin. Therefore, we must take refuge in Christ as God's vaccine for sin. Uh, Very appropriate words right now. I dare to ask that if, if you could, imagine if you could right now take a vaccine that would make you immune from the COVID-19 virus and you could quickly and easily return to life as normal, to go to work and leave your kids at home for a little while and do the normal things you enjoy doing, you would take it. You would take it joyfully. And in the same way, Christ is the vaccine for sin. And we receive it, we take him into ourself, and the infection of our sin is destroyed, and we are made right with a holy God. Christ brings forgiveness and restoration to the Father. He is the antidote to sin. The gospel is an offensive message to the person who doesn't believe in a God and believes rather that they are a self-made man or woman. But somewhat surprisingly, the gospel is also equally offensive to the religious person, to the legalist, the person who is trying to perform their way into good standing with God. The legalist, you see, is still trusting in themselves. They're trusting in their performance, their achievement, their self-righteousness, their kindness, their goodness, their generosity. The religious operate as a self-made savior of their own. And as such, religion is every bit as much idolatry as paganism. The idol of religion is self. So atheism or paganism is a dead end, but religion is just as deadly. And one of the one way it's, it's particularly dangerous or insidious is that it inoculates somebody against the truth. They think they're fine, and they're not. So let's go back to our text, verse 9. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces 
Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. In other words, Paul is saying you're turning from one empty system right into another. And I would like to bring uh, to your mind a passage of Scripture, a story that you're probably very familiar with. It's in Luke chapter 15. And unfortunately, it's, it's referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. And I would just say a much better title for this would be uh, the parable of the lost sons. Because in the story, truly both of them are lost. There are two lost sons. We tend to focus on the first son. If you're familiar with this, he is sort of the rebellious younger son, demands his father's inheritance, runs off to squander it with loose living and wild parties. And when the money is gone and the friends are gone, he finds himself starving and envying the food and the scraps of the pigs, which is just a detestable animal, especially to a Jewish audience. And as he sees this, uh, the passage tells us that he comes to his senses and begins to think about, maybe my father uh, would even let me come back as a hired hand, for he takes care of his hired hands. And so he sheepishly returns home, hoping to just return the workforce in his father's household. And in one of the most beautiful lines in all of the scripture, we, we find the text say that while he was still a long way off, the father ran to him. And the grace of the father for the rebellious son in the story is a picture of the grace of God poured out for sinners that he seeks us, not to welcome us into just the workforce, but into his family and to belonging. But again, this isn't just the story of the prodigal son. This is a story of two lost sons. For the older brother, if you're familiar with the story, can't bring himself to rejoice in the acceptance of his younger rebellious brother. The older brother, we learn in the story, is adverse to grace. He resists it. He even touts his own standing with the father based upon his loyalty and his diligence and his hard work and just being there steady all the time. And the point of Jesus in this story of the two lost sons is this, that we can be as lost in our religion as we can be in our rebellion. In fact, in the story of the two lost brothers, it's only the younger rebel who knows his sin, admits his fault, finds grace, receives forgiveness and restoration. It's the older brother, the self-righteous brother, who is left standing back, angry and rejecting grace. And the reader is sort of left with the mystery of this response. It's kind of a cliffhanger ending. Uh, and so we're left to basically ask the question, is this brother, the older brother, going to find grace or is he going to stay lost in his self-righteousness? And that is the point that we are meant to be confronted with. We can be as lost in our religion as we are lost in our rebellion, maybe even more so. But God offers grace to sinners. We find in John 1, verses 16 and 17, these beautiful words. Out of His fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
And I would just uh, lovingly right now want to kind of get in your face and make an appeal and say to you, those of you who are still stiff-arming God and saying, no, thank you, I don't want you, and you sort of identify with the rebellious, the rebellious son, I would make an appeal to you and call you to repentance, to take refuge in Christ for your sin and be shielded by the coming wrath of God. God wants to extend grace. And the rebellious son finds it. And if that's been you, if you've been the atheist or the paganist or the person rejecting God as we find him in Scripture, then I would call you lovingly to repentance to find salvation in Jesus Christ. But equally, I would turn to you who are religious, who are trusting in your self-righteousness and your performance and your efforts and all of the good things that you attempt to do as you try to prop yourself up before God as one who's worthy then I would lovingly get in your face and say, please do not trust in yourself. You are no kind of Savior, but trust in Jesus Christ who died for you and who offers His righteousness to you. Both the religious and the rebellious need a Savior. It is only those who find grace who find salvation. Let's move on. In chapter uh, or verse 12, we find these words, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Well, here what we find, I think, is an example uh, of a loving relationship that is willing to warn another person of danger. And uh, this is just one of those great examples of the proverb that says, an enemy multiplies kisses. But wounds from a friend can be trusted. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. And Paul is just sort of bringing this to their attention. I've loved you enough to speak the hard truth to you, to confront you about the way that you were heading. And I want to just take this moment to sort of uh, ask you to consider your own life and your own friendship network right now. Uh, It seems to me that our current cultural moment uh, seems to promote friendships that are just all about affirmation just patting you on the back and telling you you're doing fine. Uh, Think of some of the phrases that we hear all the time. Don't throw shade. Don't judge. You be you. Live your own truth. Be true to yourself. Don't hate. Whatever makes you happy. And these are some of those popular slogans just kind of governing relationships today. And I think what happens is that just creates a whole bunch of yes men but few true friends. Uh, Those kinds of folks, they're just bobbleheads. And I would tell you, bobbleheads belong on your dashboard, but not in your friendship network. Pursue true friends, friends who love you and love you enough to speak the truth to you. Um, True friends uh, will tell you uh, in a time of need, uh, when they see something, because they have developed the relational muscle, they have developed the trust, they have dr- developed the right to say hard things, and they intend to walk out correction with you, they will tell you what they believe you need to hear. 
And I just want to ask you, do you have a friend like that in your life? This is a person who will tell you that they think you're wrong. Uh, They'll confront you in your sin. They'll do it in love, not in meanness. Meanness is not a spiritual gift, although I think some people think that it is. But they'll do it in love. This is someone who will listen to you and listen to your musings and your questionings. They'll be open-minded. They'll be willing to be critical, but they'll always bring you back to Scripture as the final authority of your life. Uh, This is someone that will tell you they think you've drifted from what's good. They'll show you that your focus is off. They'll listen to you, identify with you and your difficulty, ask you thoughtful questions, and yet love you enough to speak the truth to you. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. It's just an enemy that multiplies kisses. And if you have a friend in your life like that, I would tell you that you're very, very lucky. This is a true friend uh, that does not sacrifice truth at the altar of love. And unfortunately, they're hard to find, and they oftentimes don't seem like they stay in Fairbanks very long. So some great examples of these kinds of folks in Scripture. We have David and Jonathan, Ruth and Naomi, Nathan to David, Barnabas to Paul, and here Paul to the Galatians. They have had an interpersonal relationship. Paul has been the recipient of their incredible kindness and reception. Uh, And when he was ill, he says that they cared for him. He goes as far as to say, you would have given me your own eyes. The painful reality here that all of us, I think, can identify with, and all of us have probably known, is that by being a friend and by lovingly speaking the truth to someone, sometimes it strains a friendship, not just for a day or for a week, but sometimes for a season. And those are painful things. And this is what Paul is getting at when he asks the question, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? And I wonder if you can relate to that. Have you had an occasion where you have confronted somebody and felt the pain of a newly strained relationship because of your loving confrontation? Um, I have. I'm sure you probably have. But what I would remind you of is this, that love calls us to it. In fact, I'd like to borrow the words, some words from uh, the poet Richard Wilbur. He says, love calls us to the things of this world. It calls us to the things of this world, even lovingly confronting a friend, as Paul does here. Uh, I like to look at this question. What is this that Paul means when he pleads for them to become like him? Uh, It sounds like a pretty arrogant request. I wish that you'd become like me. Uh, I mean, truthfully, I probably wish that people were more like Eric. Uh, I I know there would be problems in the world, but at least I would understand our problems because they'd be the same problems I live with all the time. Um, Of course, I don't want there to be a bunch of Eric clones in the world. We have enough problems with this one. My wife will testify to that. But what is it that Paul is pleading for here when he says, become like me? And the answer is that Paul is saying, I wish you would embrace the freedom that the gospel offers. I wish you would embrace the freedom that I am enjoying. I wish you were like me in that you were freed by Christ. And Paul is a credible person to speak to this issue. He is one who has moved from legalism to the gospel of grace. And his conversion was not cheap grace, and it hasn't resulted in an easy life, but he is 
free in Christ. He has this newfound life and he is loving it and he is compelled to spend his life persuading others to enter into the grace that he has found in Christ Jesus. I would just say this, there is no greater joy than knowing peace with God. It anchors us in a world filled with fear and anxiety. And my friends, I wrote those words two weeks ago, and it seems a lot more true to me today even than then. We are assured that we are from first to last His own, that our sins have been transferred from us to another, punished in Christ. We're assured that this world is not our home. We're travelers passing through and that truly the life that God leads us to here on this earth, even on this earth, is the best life of all. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux said it this way, From the best bliss the world imparts, we turn again unfilled to thee. St. Augustine has said it this way, You have made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Where the famous missionary Jim Elliot, who gave his life as a martyr for the gospel, said this, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So verse 17 here, as we kind of come to a close, he says, Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. And to be so always, not just when I'm with you, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Friends, there are a lot of people out there who are looking to make followers of themselves, but the church should be looking to make followers of Jesus Christ. And so the last point that we find here is this. Don't be enamored by misguided zeal, but pursue what is good and what is true. And the goodness that we find here is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he comes to free us from the condemnation and the guilt and the trappings of sin so that we would be those who are no longer lost in rebellion, neither would we be those who are lost in religion. The good life is found in receiving and knowing peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to close this kind of by way of benediction here by reading the words of Peter in 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 3 and 7. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Thanks for tuning in today. It's been great to be able to preach the Word of God to you. Amen.
Hey Bethel, uh, just finished preaching a sermon and uh, I want to just let you know we hope that you will continue to uh, discuss the sermon either in your small group or with your family uh, or maybe if, if you're single or if you're living alone uh, you can discuss, make a phone call or do a video conference call with somebody. Uh, take the sermon notes that have been developed uh, for small group discussion and think through those and read through the passages and reflect upon it and uh, take this opportunity just to connect with others and uh, to listen to one another and to hear how you're processing the information. Uh, we certainly learn from hearing the Word of God uh, preached and proclaimed, uh, but boy, it can go a lot deeper when we're willing to discuss it with one another. So I encourage you, uh, if you're still meeting with your small group or talking uh, with friends uh, or your family uh, or make a phone call, uh, dive in and go a deeper level with what we've just heard. Thanks.